Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to today's lecture, which is part of the sixth LSE Literary Festival. Um, it's the last day of the festival, so there's still some events this afternoon. And I'm not sure, I assume there's still tickets, but I don't know, um, to be honest. But they will be able to help you at the um, information desk. Um, my name is Stefan Guttinger. I'm a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy of the Natural and Social Sciences here at LSE. Um, our center is the sponsor of this event, um, hence I'm the chair. Uh, I've been chosen as the chair. Um, and it's my great pleasure to welcome our speaker today, Giovanni Frazzetto. Um, Giovanni will be talking today about his book, um, How We Feel, What Neuroscience Can and Can't Tell Us About Our Emotions. Um, before I give you some more details on Giovanni and his work, I just want to give you a few more um, information about today's event. So we have, well, we had 90 minutes. It's a bit shorter now. I'm sorry for, um, for running late. The event will have to end at half past two. And the plan is to have Giovanni speak for about 50 minutes. And after that, we open to the floor and take questions from the audience. Um, the event is recorded, so if everything goes well, it should be on the website of the LSE as a podcast. I'm apparently not, to, not supposed to, to promise anything because apparently it can go wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it should be there within the next couple of days. Um, I'm also supposed to point out a hashtag that goes along with this LSE Literary Festival, and it should be on, but it's not. It's um, hashtag LSE Lit Fest as one word. So... If you feel like tweeting about this event, you're invited to do so. If you just want to focus on the lecture and the Q&A, that's fine by me too. Um, another important point is that Giovanni will be signing books afterwards outside of the lecture, and also the book will also be on sale, so you can buy it and then have it signed. Um, I guess that's it. Just a few remarks on um, Giovanni's background. So he was um, born and raised in Italy, came to the UK to study science, went then to um, Germany to do a PhD in molecular biology. And then um, he went on to do postdoc work. He had, a very interesting, um, he had a very interesting fellowship that he got, which I actually also tried to... I, I applied. I didn't try. I applied. But I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't get it. So um, it tells you something. But anyway, it's, uh, it's very talk, interesting. Must talk to them. Well, I, um, it's, um, it's called the Bronkowice Fellowship. It's Society in Science or Science in Societies. And um, it's five years and it gives you lots of freedom and a very, it's a very... It's a very nice um, funding scheme. And he, he did his work, actually, for that, with that fellowship um, here at LSE at the Biocenter, um, which is also a very nice institution, which is now moved to King's College, which is um, sad, but... Um, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's just sad to lose them. And, um, again, a very interdisciplinary um, environment, and maybe we get the chance to talk about this and how it's influenced your work after the talk. Um, this book is his first book. It's been published by Doubleday. Doubleday. And has also been translated to German and 12 other languages. So it's doing really well. And um, Giovanni also publishes or has written theater plays, short stories. They've even been on stage. So a very prolific writer. And um, yeah, I think I'll leave it at that. And give a hand over to Giovanni. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Stefan. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you all for coming here. Uh, first of all, I have a tendency to speak with a very low tone, so I'll do my best. And if you don't, if you can't hear me, just raise your hand, and I'll do my best to to be audible uh, to you. <laughs> um, I'm very pleased to 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 be here, and um, I will start um, straight away and, and and say that that we we, we often hear that um, what counts most in us is um, is a web of neurons, and that if we learn how those neurons fire, we will probably come closer to understanding who we really are. We will come closer to understanding what it means to be human. And, um, and, and someone has even said that we will be um, following the ancient dictum, know thyself. But are we really just our brains? This is the question that I... That, I, that I'd like to ask, and I'm going to address it by talking about emotions that are such an uh, intrinsic and intimate aspect of, of who we are. When I worked in a neuroscience laboratory myself, uh, this question, whether or not I'm just my brain, surfaced mostly in the evenings when I was exhausted for having run experiments all day, and I find myself in front of the sink with dirty glassware piled up, my lab coat stained with chemicals, and my thoughts also in need of a rinse. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I knew that I was, I was uh, with, my, with my own um, um, experiments, I was trying to address this question. However, since I was a, um, a biology student, I was, I was obsessed with another question, which is, can science teach me how to live? Can science um, teach me how to experience my emotions in this, in this case. And I knew that I, with my experiments, I was collecting minute fragments of biological information. And that for me was like deciphering a tale, a tale written in code about the brain and, and the mind that I was contributing to writing uh, myself. And the protagonists of this tale were brain tissues, neurons, stretches of DNA, proteins, and, and enzymes. But when I made my way home, all the scars left behind, and I would latch on to another story that was my own emotional life. Um, and, and the script of that story was still to be uh, written. I was the only uh, protagonist. And so again, can this neural script really tell us how, how we feel? For an answer, um, I plowed through um, episodes in my own emotional life, and I turned to writing about them. So I contrasted life experience with knowledge of the brain, or what I knew, what I was learning about um, the brain. So today I'm going to tell you a few of, this, of the stories. I have stories about anger, guilt, fear, sadness, joy, uh, love, and, and, and empathy. And we will spend the next um, 40 minutes or so talking about some of these emotions and stories. So here you have a picture of Samuel Beckett, the great Irish writer who spent most of his life in Paris, writing French. And um, he had a few, two of his closest friends were the painter Abigdor Arica, who actually drew um, him uh, very often, and his wife, Anne Attic, a poet. And um, Anne Attic recalls that one evening, Samuel Becker turned up to their house and he was carrying uh, the, the whole works of Immanuel Kant. And sandwiched between the, the pages of the Critique of Pure Reason was a little poem called Petit Sot, which in France meant a little fool. And the poem dealt with an episode from his childhood. As a child of five or six, um, Samuel Beckett found a hedgehog and put it in a shoebox. 
and he was he was um, excited about that, loved the animal so dearly, kept it, fed it, but one day, to his dismay, he discovered it dead. And he was, um, he was really sad about that, and apparently he kept telling the story to his friends, even as an adult. And he, this, this story kept such a, left such a mark on him that he, that he needed to write a poem about it. So what, what Samuel Beckett was feeling is, is, is guilt, and, and guilt bites. It's like a, a pebble in the shoe, something you can't get rid of, or a heavy burden, just like the, the Count's work that he was carrying up the stairs to go, to, to go visit his friends. And I also find that guilt punctuates our biography. It dots our memory um, in, you know, with, 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 with episodes that reach far into our remote um, past. So nowadays, scientists are looking for for the neural seat of guilt. So where does sit guilt in our, in our brain? What is, the, what is the exact location of the emotion of guilt? Even the guilt that, um, that surfaces when we remember bad crimes from, from, from the past. And in one experiment that was conducted at the Charité Hospital um, in Berlin, they asked... Um, a few dozens of individuals to make a list of, of, of events from their life that were stained by, by guilt. Then they put them in the brain scanner and asked them to recall those events during the procedure and looked at what happened inside the brain. And this is the result. So you have this, the brain, you might be very familiar with these pictures. We have, yes, <laughs> we, we, uh, we, um, we see them everywhere, um, even in, in newspapers. And so we have this, this, this dot here that corresponds to uh, the frontal part of the brain, in particular the orbitofrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain right behind your, right behind your eyes. And they were satisfied with the, with the outcome of the experiment because this part of the brain had been involved also in other experiments with decision-making and morality and, 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 when we, and uh, episodes when we formulate or assess the consequences of our, of our um, actions. So here's the result. And um, um, I don't know, have you ever killed a hedgehog? <laughs> Neither have I, but I think we can all relate to feelings of guilt. We feel guilty for not replying to an email very quickly because we're late to work or we're missing a deadline uh, because we, we don't call our parents or we decide to live miles away from them um, or because we skip a yoga lesson and still go to the pub and eat those crisps. And, uh, and we also sometimes can, be, no, can feel guilty for, for, being, for being happy. So there, there are no reasons to... to um, we don't miss an occasion to feel guilty. I've been told to, to speak closer to the microphone. <laughs> but, so I haven't killed a hedgehog uh, in my life, but I, there was one episode when I felt bad about having disappointed a friend. So, um, a friend, my friend Ezra, invited me to a conference, a conference that she herself had organized, and I was so excited about it, I said, yes, um, I'm, I'm, I will come. But I um, sloppily forgot to mark the, the event in the calendar. And so one week before the conference came the reminder, where's your paper? We all look forward to seeing you. And I panicked because I wasn't ready. I had to speak about something that I had not um, spoken about before. I had other um, speaking commitments ahead of, of, of the event. So I, with reluctance, uh, I decided to, to cancel. And of course, Ezra was very bad. It was not a good thing to do, and I felt so, so bad. But it was really the best decision, decisions to do at that, at that time. 
So I was trying to figure out this guilt and see how I was feeling. And I had this image in front of me and I said, well, does this really help me to understand guilt or, or let alone to try and get rid of it, to assuage it? A sculptor friend of mine, an artist, said, suggested that I go to Rome um, to visit Galleria Borghese and, and, and get a sense of guilt from another image, a timeless painting in a museum. So you might be familiar with this picture. This is Caravaggio's uh, David and Goliath. And you know, you look at it, and you know there's something sinister about it. You, you, um, there's something somber emanating from, from, from this picture. And I was raptured by the painting, and, and I found it resonating with some of the feelings that I was trying to, 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 to work out. And this became all more evident when I learned more about the picture. So you have David, who, by the way, shows no exultancy for what he did, for having killed um, Goliath. And you have this, this head swinging from, from, from David's hand, who is actually Caravaggio. The head you see is Caravaggio's self-portrait. This is because Caravaggio when he was 35, killed a man. He was one of the greatest painter, painter in Italy at that time, but he was no easygoing chap. He found himself involved in a brawl and killed his opponent, and that meant that he was exiled from Rome and couldn't return. So he painted this, this picture to try and get pardon from the higher orders of the church in Rome to try and come back to, 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 to Rome. So we really don't know whether Caravaggio felt any guilt. He, was, he wasn't an easygoing chap uh, <laughs> at all. <laughs> he had a long record of violence uh, for himself. But at least this shows some of his um, repentance. Now, it might be strange to you that I compare a brain scan to a work of art and to a painting by, by um, Caravaggio. But if you, look, if you think about it, they're both supposed to represent the emotion of guilt. So we have one brain scan and a beautiful um, painting. And the scan is surely extremely hard to make out if you're not familiar with the anatomy of, of, of the brain. At the same time, if you look at the painting, if, unless you know more about the story, um, you know, the, you, you, um, it's hard to go beyond the, the, the immediate communicative strength of the, of the image. However, um, the, uh, the, uh, the brain scans, images of brain scans, are very attractive. They attract um, the lay uh, public and there's a, there's a study that shows that um, when non-experts are shown data um, they tend to, to, to give more credibility to data that show a brain scan rather than a, another kind of graph or no visual um, graph at all and, um, but what strikes me about um, brain scans is that um, no, really, when, when, you, when you look at them, you, you, you don't know what to make out of them. It's, uh, and um, oh, there was a, at a conference once, at the conference of the American Association of, of, of Science, there was a panel called Cognitive Paparazzi <laughs> that, again, made a very, very uh, unusual comparison between uh, journalists who are avid for scoops and, and this kind of images and scientists that produce the images. Of course, journalists... Um, see something and they take it out of context. They repackage, they revisit the news and they splash it on the front page of tabloids. So you might see Gwyneth Paltrow in Central Park with a long face and they, this will mean divorce from, from, from Chris Martin, uh, even if it's not true. And, and, so, and, and, and of course scientists have no idea of falsifying their data, neither giving the wrong information, but when these images leave the lab, they often taken out of context and revisited. So we need to be um, careful about this. So the message is that these images 
tend to reify uh, emotions, and they do, do take them out of context. But what makes emotions such as guilt moral is precisely the context in which they, which, which they arise. Killing a hedgehog is not the same thing as cancelling a lecture, and it's not the same thing as killing a man, like Caravaggio uh, did. In fact, killing a man at the time of Caravaggio was certainly not um, um, uh, 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 an obstacle action, but it, were, it happened much more often than it happens uh, now. So, and also, the, the, image, the image you see is the average result of a lot of individuals involved in the study, whereas guilt is something that happens so subjectively and at the individual um, uh, level. Um, now, there is a... Um, oh, excuse me. Um, there's another analogy that I, that I often like to use when I talk about um, uh, brain scans and, and, and what they describe. Um, their power and their limitations. I always say it's like being on top of the London Eye and having a 360 view, night view on the city of London. You're up there and we can appreciate the contour of Westminster. We can, we can say, we can point to Trafalgar Square. We can, we can see the divided line of Tottenham Court Road, the trail of cars that go up and down. And in general, we can see contrast between lit and dark areas, these flickering lights that go on and off. And, and we can see London at its busiest time and, and what the busiest areas are and when, it's, when London is, is, is sleeping. And, um, however, what we cannot see is what goes on inside those buildings, the buildings that give lights. We don't know what, is the, what are the lives and the motivations of people who have turned those lights on, if the, the lights are illuminating a romantic dinner, an argument, or if it's, uh, they're just keeping a... A baby calm because he's afraid of, of, of sleeping in the dark, or if somebody just forgot to turn it off. And so, from the, from the top of the London um, eye and through an fMRI image, we see the view is spectacular, yes, um, but it's not fully um, uh, revealing. Um, I'm going to, if this works, also I'm going to show you a video. Before, before I, I, I reveal a, a huge remedy to fight and assuage guilt. So. thanks to LSE IT because they managed to, <laughs> to have this working. So as I was saying, I promised the remedy for guilt. And uh, <laughs> I, I just wanted to say that having confronted the, the picture of Caravaggio gave me a better sense of what guilt means rather than a brain scan. Now, um, 
it may sound strange to you, but um, I read somewhere that the best remedy to get rid of a sense of guilt is to eat dinosaur meat, <laughs> which is really rare to find. So anyway, uh, enough of guilt. I'd like to talk about something, something else. Uh, so that's another story I'd like to tell you. Um, imagine a dark, cold winter night. I'm about to go to bed, and the telephone rings. It's my friend Robert, an old friend from college, who says, have you heard? I say, what? Well, the world economy is going down the drain. And I said, well, that's a great reason to call me when I'm, you know, when I'm about to go to bed. And he said, no, we, he was really terrified. Um, and um, and you know, Robert used to work one, for one of the financial giants in the, in the city of London. So he had a reason to, to, to worry. And I said, OK, look, I'll, I'll, I'll come and see you tomorrow. I'm tired now, and uh, I'll go to bed. But when I, when I tried to sleep, sleep eluded me. His, his mood was really contagious. And even if I, I don't understand anything about economics, I had no savings to speak of that were in danger of, uh, you know, <laughs> of being lost in the economic uh, crisis. And yet I had these images of, of formulas and equations, like the, the memory of math homework left undone. It was haunting me while I was sleeping, sleeping in there. And, um, and uh, at some point, those, um, those worries became something else. And I'm going to read a short passage from the text of the, um, of the book to give you an idea of what I was feeling. So eventually my worries became something else. Spinning in a vortex of confusion, I began to feel directionless, pondering my whole existence. Just over the threshold of 30, single, overworked, on the verge of making a leap in my career, I began to worry about the meaning of all I had done, whether or not I had taken the right decisions in life. It was one of those moments when I thought I needed to do everything at once, as if the world were about to end, and I only had a few hours left to accomplish all I'd ever wanted to do. It felt as if someone had turned off the customary soundtrack to my day, and the strong, stubborn wind had dislodged me from the life carousel I was a part of, uprooting the pillars of hope for the future and leaving an empty stage with me at its center in the spotlight. That wind had a name, anxiety, and it was blowing strong and determined. So that's more or less like I was feeling, and I called Robert back and I said, let's go for a drink. So, um, you know, I, I, I was with him and he said, are you supposed to know what to do in this case? And I said, well, fix the economic crisis. He said, no, help me work out. Um, this, this anxiety because you work in the lab. So I, I had to reflect on how I could use my knowledge in the lab to try and confront this feeling, bear it, make it go away, or perhaps just work through it or take advantage of it. And one of the, way, one of the ways we have to, to study fear and anxiety in the lab is to conduct experiments um, on mice. Usually what you do is you, you take a mouse, um, you put it in a, in a new cage, you ring a tone, and then you give a minor um, shock to the feet of the mouse. It doesn't get hurt. But after a few despairings, the, the mouse learns that when, you know, tone, shock, tone, shock, he knows that when the tone comes, he will receive a shock. And, and, and so he will respond to physiological reactions. The heart will pound, he will sweat. And there's something else that, he, that the mouse does in the laboratory, we call it freezing. It paralyzes. And so... Scientists has learned what are the, the pathways that fear takes 
in, in the brain. And we also know some of the genes um, involved in this, in this pathways. And I was doing some of that work. Um, but in, in truth, these experiments were not enough to um, let me understand how I was feeling in that, uh, in that moment. And so Robert and I turned to um, philosophy, of which neither of us knew um, anything. But <laughs> we just brushed up some, uh, some essential notions uh, of, 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 of philosophy, and, and we talked about existential um, uh, philosophy. Now, um, we've, we've, you know, if you listen to the, to, to, to the text, you know, this, this wind, this wind that takes everything away, uh, wipes everything away from the horizon, and leaves you helpless in that moment with your life in front of you. It's horrific because you have your future and you know what to, what to do. Um, yet, um, anxiety can also be seen as, as, a, as playing an instrumental role in our lives. We actually have the opportunity to, when we're facing um, our lives, to perhaps take stock of what is going wrong. And if we are worrying, it means that something, that something we're unsatisfied with and we might be able to um, to, to change it and can lead us to perhaps find the authentic meaning in our, um, in our lives and make room for change. So this general reflections made me look at the experimentation insights through a different lens. And I, what I did was to look for experiments that somehow parallel this view. And if you go back to those mice, there was another um, experiment in which when the mice um, were given the tone, they were also given the chance to move to another room. And if they did so, the shock would not come. So again, new room, no shock, new room, no shock. The mouse would learn that by uh, actively you know, coping with, with, with this feeling and entering another room, he would be safe. Um, and this is uh, uh, something that, um, you know, instead of, instead of um, experiencing those physiological reactions, he would um, cope better with the situations. I know it's very hard to anthropomorphize that, but in fact, we can do that too. We can try, uh, when, we, when we're gripped by these by this feelings, um, we can try and, and take advantage of them by assessing what is wrong in our lives and perhaps take the alternative pathway, as, as one could call it, the alternative pathway um, that even the mouse um, followed to make a change in our lives and improve our um, conditions, uh, you know, taking advantage of the, of the plasticity of, of the brain. So you might be interested in what happened to Robert. Robert did lose his job as a banker, unfortunately. So we kept meeting and we discussed um, science and, and philosophy and, and, and lots of other things, and I, I gave him my support. And he, uh, to a great joy, decided to use some of his savings to realize um, one of his dreams was to open a bookstore. He always loved books, and he decided to close that chapter in his life, and despite his difficult moment, to actually follow his true um, inclinations. Okay, I think enough of guilt, enough of anxiety, enough of worries. Let's talk about something uh, uh, different. I'd like to talk about joy. And, and here's another um, story. Um, a poet friend of mine from New York uh, once found himself stuck during the composition of a sonnet. He had labored for days to finish uh, a sonnet, um, and, he, and he felt that he was on the right track to finish the composition. He was writing it because he was, uh, he, he was 
He was infiltrated with someone, and he didn't know where this infiltration was going, but he just saw the, the tip of something joyful, and he felt the need to celebrate that. So he had um, composed the first eight lines of the sonnet, but the rest was just a scramble. You have it here. Suspended in such spell, we, blank, the truth descended from our yearning eyes, resisting after thoughts, blank. Nothing. And also the final couplet was missing in its entirety. So at some point I asked him, how did you eventually finish the sonnet? What happened? Um, he was in New York, and uh, he said that and at some point in the middle of the night when he was awake, he paced up and down the room and felt some cracks on the, on the floor. There was the River Hudson visible from his room. He was seeing also the lights in New York uh, being turned off. And, and he looked at the stars. And that's when things started to make sense again. Ooh, there's the, the cracks on the floor are like the, the scars of the desire that he was um, a victim of. <laughs> and the stars, of course, rhymes with scars. So suddenly the missing piece surfaced, and this dissonance blossomed into, into, into a poem that eventually went like this. Suspended in such spell, we won high tides, embraced the water, gazed upon the stars. The truth descended from our yearning eyes, resisting after thoughts, erasing scars. Here, tears are sweet, well done, what gives to cry? At sea for the night, you and I fly high. I have a full disclosure to make. The person who was, who was struggling with the poem is not a friend of mine. He's speaking right now in front of you. <laughs> And um, each, you know, each time you conclude a piece of writing, whatever it is, you think that a miracle has happened. You don't know how, how it has happened, and it's so, also uh, so, so rare. And you know, as long as it happens with sufficient regularity, I think it's nice to leave part of that process to, to an unyielding uh, mystery, if you want. However, research is trying to unravel how such process may, may come about. And, um, and one, one, one thing that is emerging from uh, laboratory research is that if we are rewarded um, and we are in a positive mood, we, work, we also work um, better. And in general, try to be um, clear and, and simple, there is an ongoing dialogue between two um, centers in the brain, well, centers that are more internal to the brain. They're called the reward uh, system. They respond and react to, to rewards and give us a, um, a positive mood. And the more frontal part of the brain, the, the prefrontal cortex, that in fact um, works a little differently and likes to follow rules, you know, in a way. And so this, this, this dialogue between um, two that helps the creative process. If I were supposed to apply this model to that experience, the experience of that night, perhaps what happened was that I was so joyful about being in New York, which is a city that I like so much, I had... Uh, I was tired, yes, but very, very excited. I had those uh, signs of inspiration, the stars, the cracks, the water from the, from the river. And these were incentives, very needed um, rewards that, that kept me um, going. On the other hand, I'd been, I'd been laboring on the sonnet for, for a few weeks, and I, I'd become familiar with the rules of the sonnet. So the two things um, helped um, in a way. And so after being stuck with this unfinished lines, finally I found um, a solution. And, uh, and um, you know, the, the fact that there's this ongoing dialogue between the two parts of the brain 
um, is only something that I can assume is going on while I am uh, writing. Um, uh, you know, on the other hand, I can show you the the notebook where I wrote the sonnet, and 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 the and I can document the gradual uh, progress, line after line, syllable after syllable, stress after after stress. So knowledge that something something specific um, is happening to my brain while I'm intent on finishing uh, the sonnet is surely extremely fascinating, um, but it's uh, also, also an enterprise which is parallel um, and independent from the poetic undertaking. Okay, we will end with love. So, can we study love in the laboratory? Can we trap love in a test tube? Does it make sense to employ reason, logic, to to, to trap something so evanescent, so unpredictable, uh, so unruly, and, and yet so delicate. Um, several um, experiments from the lab are trying to map love in the brain, just like they're trying to map um, guilt. So they're trying to reveal some of the brain anatomy and also to find out uh, what are the chemical reactions behind um, love. And one of the results, um, um, which is about, uh, it was about, they, they, they put individuals into a brain scan by letting them watch the face of their beloved, someone that they'd been freshly fallen in love with. So this was a, a very uh, early phase of, of their romantic um, love. And what they found out was that uh, regions that were more involved in this uh, process were um, regions in the brain that process um, desire and reward um, in general. And these are also regions where a neurotransmitter called dopamine is, is, is released. And dopamine makes us euphoric, um, is, uh, makes us hyperactive, and uh, also make us, makes us focus, focus on and want more of the coveted individual, as if we were addicted to him or, or her. I don't know if this is uh, good information when you're going on a date, if, if, you, if you need to know where the dopamine is, is being released in, in your brain. I personally suggest other types of readings that I used myself and goes, go back um, a long way in the, in the history of, of, of love. And I, I highly recommend Plato's Phaedrus, which will give you a great uh, impression of, what, of this mania, of this euphoria um, you feel when you've just fallen in love. But in those same experiments, there is another finding uh, that emerged. So alongside this uh, great um, euphoria, there was um, less activity in areas that we usually um, use to formulate judgments. So we formulate judgments about um, other um, people. And it does, this makes sense. I mean, when we meet someone new, we hardly can find anything negative about them. If anything, we, we, only can, we can only spot qualities that we highly cherish and there are often qualities that we lack ourselves. So, in a way, perhaps um, this finding is, is nothing more than a, than a contemporary exploration of the old notion that love is blind. And um, and this is something that poets have done for a long time. Um, this is only one example. Oh, me, what eyes I love put in my head, which have no correspondence with true sight. Or if they have, where is my judgment fled that censors falsely what they sense aright? Now, 
um, encountering someone new when you fall in love um, is not just a reason, an excuse for triggering the release of neurotransmitters and, make, and, and making us euphoric. When we fall in love, we also train practices of bonding, practices of loving, practices of approaching other human beings. And these are patterns that we are accustomed to, that we make recur. And I mean, it, is, it is an accepted idea that when we come into the world, everything that we experience leaves a mark on us. This is the, I call it the ink of experience, it writes on us. So this is, trains, us on, trains us to behave in a certain way. And in the case of a love and relationship and bonding, this is something that we often learn from our um, parents, um, who teach us primarily how to love. And this is a well-known notion. Neuroscience comes into this um, because uh, neuroscience is trying to understand how experience gets under our skin and trying to figure out what are the molecular aspects of this, of this phenomenon. So what, what changes in us, in our neurons, and in our DNA to um, impart this way of, 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 um, of loving. This is called, in general, um, epigenetics, if you want. And I must tell you um, something, a story from where I used to work um, in the lab that has to do with this. I, part of my um, job during my postdoc was to observe four hours a day, if not more sometimes, in the dark, mouse mothers taking care of their pups. And it might be strange to you, but there are strains, different strains of mice that, by, you know, by nature, display different levels and qualities of maternal care. So you can have, you can really observe like a bad mother and a good mother. And the bad mother hardly stays with the pups. She abandons the litter, plays in, in the cage, drinks, eats, goes on the wheel thing, and spends very little time with the pups. You know, she just does the minimum for their survival. You, know, you win them after three, four weeks, and you can see that. Uh, because if you are in front of a good mother, you actually see the difference. She hardly never leaves the, the litter. She's always there. She leaks them. She grooms them. Um, she hardly hits for herself. She takes good care of them. And she does something else which, in the jargon, is called the, she assumes the blanket position, which means that she tries to embrace the pups all at once under, under their, their wings. And you can see that. Um, you know, that four hours a day you have to take notes of all, all these things. Uh, you, 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 you are dressed like a Michelin man with all those uh, antiseptic uh, material in the dark for your lights. But um, anyway, and what happens is that you, you inevitably tend to anthropomorphize that. I ask myself, did my mother ever lick me? <laughs> oh, did my mother ever lick me enough? <laughs> and did she assume the blanket position? <laughs> Even more so, did her mother assume the blanket position on her? But because the thing that, that happens with this mice is that you can see it very, very clearly. So those who are raised to a good mother, when they reach adulthood, they, they're, they're, they're less fearful, whereas the ones raised to a bad mother are very fearful. We can talk about what it means to be fearful for a mouse, for sure. But there are experiments that can, that can give you a, a, a glimpse into, into that kind of behavior. And if you take those born to a bad mother and transfer them to a good mother, they will do better. Not only that, the girls in that group become good mothers in their turn. Okay, so this is the, how the, the behavior is, 
is transmitting. That's why I was figuring out about my mother and my grandmother and about their attitudes of blanketing their, their, their offspring. Um, <laughs> um, so I must say that um, as I was doing this myself, I mean, this, I find this, 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 um, this uh, branch of neuroscience extremely exciting. There's a long way to go, but the fact that we're trying to see how experience writes in our brain is, is, is totally um, inspiring. On the other hand, just as we saw with the madness of love and how poets actually got there first, um, there's a, another poem that um, very clearly um, shows um, epigenetics at its, uh, at its core. And this is a lapidary poem by uh, Philip Larkin. I'm sure you are familiar uh, with that. <laughs> Which, um, in a way, has a lot to, uh, <laughs> to teach us um, about love and the influence that our parents um, have um, on us. So, in sum, uh, we could say that love is a natural phenomenon, uh, as in a huge part of our lives, demands investigation, demands that we explore it. And perhaps science is just one way of, of looking um, um, at it. So, so scientific knowledge adds itself to the stack of knowledge that is already at our disposal um, and adds itself also to just trial and, and error. But if you, but if you, in, you are in search of tips upon, but also do you um, very good. So um, I'm coming to... Uh, our conclusion. I'll just to like I'd like to um, uh, sum it up, and also say that having had this neuroscience and general biology background, when I when I use figures of science and uh, the very technical nomenclature to describe my emotions, to describe my life, I always have to ask myself: Is this exact? Does the brain map actually? tell me what is going on and that are the fluctuations doing justice to the feeling are they doing justice to, um, to nature whereas when I describe feelings through stories I like to think that that is also extremely rigorous and extremely faithful to what it is that I am uh, feeling so on one hand we have perhaps figures predictions experiments and on the other hand we have visions stories and unpredictability but I think that settling for one side or, or, or the other of this set of ideas is not necessary. That in fact, um, uh, you know, when I experience an emotion as a, as a man, a friend, a lover, a son, or, or a colleague, neuroscience is, is not the, the only reservoir of knowledge that I consult. It's certainly not the exclusive reservoir of knowledge that I uh, consult. Science and whatever is not science, in this case, and the arts and the humanities, are often considered as two elements that never mix, like oil and water. Um, but I think it's possible to be both scientific and lyrical when we try to understand um, ourselves. And I hope that during the stories, I've, I was able to show you a little bit how uh, we can shuttle between uh, various sets of, of, of ideas. Because um, I think that today would be unthinkable to ignore the progress of science. It would be unthinkable to exclude science from, from how we try and understand um, the world. On the other hand, it would also um, be strange just to confine in the hands of science questions that art and the humanities have tried to explore uh, with their own methods um, uh, for a long time. So we have the, the, the neurotransmitters, but poets will never run out of words to... Um, 
to, to describe how, how we feel. So perhaps this third-person detailed account of what is going on in the brain um, can be an addition to the, to the script that I talked about uh, at the beginning. But in some cases, as we experience those emotions, um, you know, they, they can be just some minor um, footnotes. And so um, as we try to cover the distance between what we experience and what we, what we feel, we can take all kinds of um, shortcuts. And to conclude uh, with how I started, I think it's fair to say that there might be um, many different roads that can lead us into the direction of uh, know thyself. So thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. It's too long. Yeah. Uh, no, we're, we're good on time. So we have um, some people who are leaving, and we have 35 minutes for questions. Um, I'll just take my liberty as a chair to ask one or two questions to start with. Um, just one about the book in general um, and the format you chose. It's, um, it was quite intriguing to see it's it's in a sense probably a popular science book or I don't know how you would classify it but if it is one it's very rare to have so much personal information in it yeah it's like you you talk about you talk about how your mother how your grandmother coped with the loss of her husband about your genetic makeup about your sexual orientation it's like it's there's a lot of personal in there and um, I was just curious because I mean in the beginning of the book you say yeah you know I was when I was working in, in the lab and I just started thinking about these things and obviously that's how you came up or how you started thinking about it but creating a book is then a whole different thing and you could leave all that out and just kind of put in your conclusions I guess so I was just curious why you what, what kind of what kind of function did you I mean it's just why, why sure. that form <laughs> sure. no, it's a great question it's a pleasure to uh, to answer it uh, I I there are, two main motivations why I wanted to write the, the book. One is um, it's more of, a, more of a scholarly question. We have uh, as a, on one side we have neuromaniacs They're, you know, with all themselves avid to say that we are just our brains and they have their own arguments and on the other side with the neurophobias who strongly reject uh, this notion and and in my, in my um, education as a scientist I always try to incorporate other Dimensions. I, I tried to do this here too, thanks to the to the bio um, uh, center. So I wasn't able to join these two aspects, and I think it's a, it's a good message. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. It, it, it's also a good message to deliver for you know for 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 those who are interested in in neuroscience, but also in general in understanding um, themselves. And the more personal reason to write the book is that. I, I was anticipating um, a lot of self-discovery for the book. I was interested in understanding myself and understanding my, my feelings and how I go about them. There are so many books on neuroscience written by eminent neuroscientists uh, who have done great discoveries, and you know, they all have their own structure. I thought that in order to highlight this contrast, I needed to use everyday um, life, everyday episodes, so that I could... I could um, uh, as, as best as, as I could you know, give both um, contributions, say, well, this is something that I learned from the lab, and this is something that I 
uh, that I experienced, and then I and then I use inspiration from 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 Shakespeare uh, or a little bit of philosophy, um, etc. So I didn't I didn't talk about all the emotions <laughs> available, and I picked those, and I also come in a certain order. I think that if I start with anger, because it gives me the chance to to talk about behavioral control in general, and maybe if you're angry, you feel guilty, and then you feel anxious, <laughs> sad, and joyful, etc., etc. So it didn't, uh, I, I think, um, it didn't uh, cross my mind to be less personal in the book, because I thought that even if we all lead different lives, these are emotions we can all relate to. Okay, yeah, well, that, that makes sense that to me. Um, <laughs> um, can you hear me well? Yeah, it's close. Yeah, good. Um, just, just one thing that you said, yeah. everyday episodes, and kind of that you, you brought that in, that, that just brings me to one point that I'm interested in, and what you said in your summary, and which is in your epilogue in the book. Um, it's kind of your, your, I would say, epistemic pluralism, that, you're, mm-hmm. that we need different forms of knowledge, and there's not one... There's not one single way of acquiring knowledge that can give us all the answers, so we need a yes. plurality of, of, of ways of getting knowledge. And um, you say in your book, you, in the end, you say, um, well, you know, my, my way of talking about my experience, my emotions, experience is always much richer than what the model that science will come up, you know, intriguing pictures and all that, but it's so much richer. And so there's this, this gap, and I guess that's, that's the point that you're saying, this is why we need a, a pluralism. Um, I was just wondering whether you're thinking, is this an in-principle gap that could never be, you know, it's just inherently there, we just, this is our limitation, or, or it's the world's limitation, two, two options, I guess. Or do you think as, as science progresses and changes its shape and the way it goes about finding out, you know, about phenomena, do you think that will, that will end? And at some point we do have a science which copes with that. Yeah. Oh, this is this is many issues. I'm so happy that you had you asked. Uh, well, this we, didn't, we didn't discuss this. Before. <laughs> no. Well, um, well. First of all, um, I'm not sure if I'm ready to make an estimate of when or if ever um, science will be able to narrow this gap, and and so we will be able to narrow the gap between what we understand as emotions and the feelings, so the subjective experience, okay? So this is one of the, the, the biggest questions, um, perhaps, you know, in the field of emotions, is the consciousness of, of, um, of this. But one thing I can say for sure is that I hinted at the, at the end with uh, saying um, that, uh, you know, it's impossible to ignore science as we understand the world. We all look for lessons, uh, etc. But I wouldn't like to see um, um, science at the service of art, and neither the other way around, art in the service of science. So some of the examples I gave, you know, the blindness of love, um, etc., point out to the fact that okay, poets knew it um, um, you know, all the way um, long back then, before. Um, I think that the, 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 the two enterprises um, you know, can go um, in parallel and try to find um, um, inspiration. I... I, um, I, I I really believe um, that experimentation can be inspired by, um, by the humanities. And I really push, uh, <laughs> I mean, I like that science education changes in that direction so that science can actually con- contextualize the experimentation in a wider, uh, in a wider um, context. And so 
there's a, there's a last thing I'd like to add is that I was inspired uh, by an essay by Italo Calvino. Uh, this is part of the of a book called The Six Memos for the Next Millennium. These are lectures that he gave, that he was supposed to give uh, in Harvard. He unfortunately died before, the day before um, uh, getting on the plane to give them. And one of, the, one of the memos is six lessons, and one is lightness. And he talks about lightness as a value for life. He says, you know, all my life as a writer, I um, believe that lightness is one of the, the best values we should we should um, uh, follow and endorse. And he was a man of, of literature. Well, his parents were both scientists, so he never worked in the neuroscience laboratory, but he, but he also said that art and literature especially is equally dense, is equally difficult, is full of, is full of, uh, of, of heaviness. <laughs> but he, he encourages us to, to, to shuttle between the two ways of looking um, at the world. And for, for, to do that, he also evokes... Uh, Lucretius and the Reverend Natura, I said, well, he's, he's a pure materialist. He talks about the world in, in, in materialistic terms, but he does it through poetry, and he can show things that are perhaps hidden through science. Okay, that's... It. Sorry, one more question. Yeah. I'll open to the... It's just because it's something so I, I mentioned... I this book very highly. It's, it's just because you, you mentioned... Um, you know, the way science might change through education or kind of the way yeah. it's... Because this is actually... When I was asking the question, I would think of something else, like, you know, big data and kind of proteomics, genomics, and integrating everything. Uh-huh. So I was, I was actually narrower in my, in my mind frame there. But it's just because I mentioned it at the beginning of, 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 of the event um, that you had these... Um, you know, the way you did your PhD, the EMBL, mm-hmm. is quite a European molecular biology laboratory. is a quite special place where... Lots of different disciplines are mixed, and obviously the bios here was a very special yeah. place in mixing, you know, social scientists, life mm-hmm. scientists, and it's just a very um, transdisciplinary um, approach. And you actually, you got—I didn't mention it in your CV kind of summary, which was not really a summary—that um, in 2008 you got the John Kendrew Prize for Young Scientists mm-hmm. for your achievements in. Or the transdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, so creative way of, of looking at science um, by you know uh, contributing at the practical level to creative schools and also engage with the arts. And so that's, some, that's something that's really um, that seems to be really of a deep interest to you to pursue that. So are you? Oh. I mean, mm-hmm. where are you taking where are you yeah. taking this at the moment with your? Yeah. Oh, it's definitely on my on my agenda, and it, and, and the motivation is again um, very personal. I just like you, I I I, work, I I studied biology at University College London, went on to do a PhD in molecular biology, and when I knew that science was not enough, I tried to do all I could by myself. The fellowship was was helpful to try and have sort of an, uh, to to have a just justification, someone endorsing um, the the need to embrace other disciplines. And being here at the LSE was a fantastic experience for that. I learned so much from sociologists of science and philosophers of science who are interested in, in, in what, uh, what is done um, in the lab. Uh, part of my contribution was to create uh, schools, courses, uh, available both for scientists, uh, for life scientists, and uh, social scientists or people in the humanities, and have them work together and try and address questions that they share, exchange their methods, and with a, with a sort of a, a visionary uh, input, uh, we ask them to do, how do you together 
make an experiment? How would you design it? And how would you try and incorporate the, all these views in, into that? And I think uh, it would be very, very useful if this were done um, early on in the career of scientists and in the career of social scientists because we tend to be so specialized. We did it at the PhD and postdoc level, but no one taught me about the history of my discipline when I was, uh, when I was an undergraduate, something that I had to do um, by myself. So it's really on my agenda to try and, and make a little contribution to facilitate um, this dialogue. Now I do it at, at, in Berlin at the Berlin Institute for Advanced Study. And I think I uh, highly uh, cherish that. You never know what's going to come out of it, you know? <laughs> well, it's and it's definitely an important, um, important move also at the hiring level and everywhere it's just give more but anyway that's yes politics. that's another um, that's not, not, that, sweet and sour <laughs> my opinion thing to, 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 um, to say let's just see um, whether we have questions in the audience um, there will be microphones passed around by stewards um, and I'll try to make sure I get the um, please wait till you get the microphone and if you ask a question please do ask a question and not not as I did, like longish kind of comments, <laughs> just try to keep it short. Um, keep because short otherwise, I will have to cut you down, which is inconsistent, but it's, it will happen. Um, so, we had two questions there. We had one up there. Um, yeah, the um, gentleman in the blue jumper, maybe. Thank you for a, for a fascinating talk. Um, your example about guilt. Uh, there was a very poignant image of the um, painting. And at the end of it, I think you concluded by saying, you have to eat, if I understood correctly what you said. <laughs> yes. Which is always, uh, always a nice thing to do. Um, <laughs> apart from eating, is there anything else that in your book that you um, touch upon? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, was, that was something um, <laughs> I, I really included in the book because I, I wrote, I, I read, um, um, uh, was a treatise, a culinary treatise, a treatise uh, written by an Argentinian author who gives different remedies. So I stumbled upon that, and really, <laughs> he says very ironically that if you eat the meat of a dinosaur, you will get over your guilt, which is a very pessimistic view um, on it. So diet um, aside, in the book I talk uh, at the end of the chapter um, how I I went back, um, I left the museum, and 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 I and I, and I actually wrote to my friend. <laughs> And, and, and gave um, all my uh, thorough uh, explanations and feelings and, and said I was, I was very sorry and I was very aware of the pain I, I, I caused. So forgiveness is a huge healer <laughs> for, for guilt. I mean, guilt is a, is a, is a very uh, penetrating uh, feeling. It's, a, it's dormant, but then it comes back unless you have resolved it. And... Um, and all I could do and what I, what I believe in is that you can forgive um, and ask for forgiveness. And uh, there's also a, a nice um, uh, um, vision on guilt in Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Darren Gray uh, that uh, inspired me to. Thank you. Yeah, lady next to you. Thank you. I had um, some questions about your mice experiments, yes. and I was wondering if there were neural differences between the mice that were raised by the good mother and the bad mother, if you did brain scans of the ah, infant mice. Yeah. Uh, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, I didn't do those experiments myself, but there were some differences in, uh, in, in, uh, in some uh, um, uh, synapse connectivity. 
I cannot give you details, but this is something, of course, you, you'd look at and see whether, what else is there. Um, another element I, I can give you, um, specific to, um, to the epigenetic transformation of the genetic material, um, since part of these exper- experiments were conducted um, in parallel to an examination of fear-like behavior, they looked at, um, at effects on the DNA of the glucocorticoid receptor, which is a receptor, is a nuclear receptor which changes gene transcription, but it has to do with the stress cascade. So that's, these are for sure the type of elements that they looked at. Okay, there was a question back there, the lady, yes, and then the gentleman here. Thank you. Um, One of the things neuroscience is doing is looking at those drugs that are designed to do away with emotional pain. And of course, lots of people take them now, and perhaps we're going to see a trend where there's more and more of this. I wondered what your thoughts were on this, because we could all anaesthetise ourselves if we wanted to, and that certainly might uh, go against the developments of the arts, for example. Should we be suppressing pain? Thank you. So, thank you for your question. I talk about um, pain and specifically about grief in in the book. Um, I try to lay out what are the main differences or similarities between, at the neurological level, between physical pain and emotional pain. I use a very personal story, the loss of my grandfather and how my grandmother, the rest of the family and I coped with that. And I was impressed with uh, certain very recent developments in, in psychiatry uh, trying to commodify grief, making it, making it a, a diagnosis, something that is recognizable in the brain as if there was an entity called grief that is specifically classifiable in biological elements. And, uh, and, I've, and, and of course, uh, this raised a huge um, increase in the prescription of drugs that can dampen this brain. Even so, that um, it earns uh, a psychiatric diagnosis if you grieve for longer than two weeks and you display symptoms that are um, common to depression, you, you earn a psychiatric diagnosis and you can be prescribed medications. I think there is no prescribed duration for grief. Uh, two weeks is definitely not enough. <laughs> Personal experience, but I've seen it in other people. And I think your question raises important um, issues of how um, culture, and in this case specifically language, uh, you know, how the creation of, of, of particular emotions that we need to deal um, with. But this overlooks, um, at the biological level, huge variation. Uh, we're all equipped um, you know, differently uh, to, to, to cope with it. So, whereas a category, a category of this kind unifies grief as a, you know, reifies it. Uh, so, I am very much concerned um, with this. And you will see, uh, you know, I think, I don't know where this is going. I mean, in, in the book, I, I really compare, I say that my, my grief is not the same as my <laughs> grandmother's grief. And yet, we're both looking at the sea that reminds us of uh, grandfather. And um, I recall ancient remedies uh, from Greek medicines um, that described grief and emotions with the humoral uh, theory as a counterpart to prescribed drugs. Com- complimentary. So thank you. 
Okay. Gentleman in the front row and then the lady in the back left. Thank you. In your, in your lovely talk, I, I kept wondering um, whether your argument was basically an epistemological one or an ontological one. And what I mean by, by that is, are you arguing essentially that each disciplinary lens, so neurophysiology or art or poetry, can only tell us so much, that they're incommensurable, you can't reduce them to one, and therefore we need several of them? Or are you arguing, or are you also arguing, that reality itself, in this case the emotional life, has lots of incommensurable aspects, multiple layers, and can't be reduced to one? Which of those, or both, are you arguing? (laughs) So if I, if I understood your question well, I mean, the difference between epistemology and ontology, I think it's fair to, to argue, um, you know, both, both ways. We don't know what these things are, are made of. Uh, and I'm, 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 a, I'm a materialist, <laughs> that is for sure. So I would never like to stop uh, experimentation in this, in this regard. However, um, because, so sticking to ontology, I don't know what entity is there that is an emotion and that is grief or, or, or anything. Uh, it's somewhere in the, in, in the body, and we have, however, different ways of, of reaching to this. Um, so that's where the pluralism comes into, 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 uh, into the question. Uh, very recently, um, I, I read there were yet ongoing debates about what is the role of the humanities and, and science in knowledge in general, how we produce uh, knowledge and what is the best way and there was many many arguments between um, uh, neuroscientists especially and, and philosophers and, and, uh, and some neuroscientists said well Kant and Spinoza and other people were neuroscientists uh, without knowing it and the, the, the humanities replied well if they are why don't neuroscientists read them <laughs> very very carefully so um, I think it's possible to, to endorse both views, and I hope I understood you. <laughs> okay, a lady in the back. Uh, hello. Hi, Professor Giovanni. I really like your talk, and I really Thank like you. your perspective on neuroscience and emotions. Uh, my question is very, very simple indeed. Uh, I'd like to ask what your opinion about consumer neuroscience is. Uh, my opinion on, excuse me? Consumer neuroscience. Consumer neuroscience, as in... Uh, As in neuroscience um, deployed in market research, for example. Ah. Uh, (laughs) Okay. I'm not sure that I I know so much about this. I think uh, marketing is is often an exploited uh, cognitive uh, science to understand how we react to to things. And... uh, I personally haven't done work in this area um, at all. I know there's a huge interest because in parallel there's so much, uh, so much that we, you know, we, we know more and more. And so if we before only knew psychological reactions to, to, to products and, and to, to campaigns, now we can sit in the brain. But um, I, I don't see uh, such, of a, such of a problem. I just... Uh, but however, I don't know much about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Even Thank if the question so was simple, I just Thank you. Know. Okay, are there any other questions? If not, I'm going to just ask one more question. Um, <laughs> just, well, we got some more time. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's, um, it's, again, coming back to also the question that the gentleman in the front row asked about this kind of epistemic pluralism and... Um, 
how you, because in your book you say, um, well, we have these different ways of knowing things, and we just need to choose the apt thing. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. I might choose art, I might choose science. I just mm-hmm. it, it must be apt. But yeah. obviously, that's kind of a, it's, it, whereas it's. Are you, are you any more kind of normative on it, saying, well, you know, it's kind of, we have, how, how are we going to choose? If, if someone else, yeah. if someone else in court says, no, I think this is apt, you know, how are you going to, do you have an opinion yeah, on, I think on that, that? I think that's the challenge. That's the challenge of finding. So, given a question, given a question, we need to answer. If it is shared, uh, and it's a global problem that different disciplines are trying to use, we need to find the best way to do it. I often give a very specific example, at least in the field of, uh, of neuroscience, and it's got to do with the, the, the question asked by um, the lady about, about grief. Because I mentioned individual variation. Okay? I, kept, I keep talking about um, experiments, and then I also tell stories. And the subjective versus the, the objective view um, on this Individual variation is something that um, often is, um, is, um, is forgotten in experimentation. You see the average of, of the measurements in the case of guilt, for instance. Um, you use populations to look at genetic variation. But if you were interested, perhaps, in these nuances at the level of symptoms, you could collect narratives from people who show symptoms or certain aspects of a disorder and instead of concentrating on the average, look at the outliers and see there, among them, what happens at the, at the symptomatic level, but also what happens in their biology. And, this, and then you could pro- perhaps send an anthropologist and look at the context where these people have been living, etc. That already, you know, there's, there's a, there was an emerging field um, called neurophenomenology uh, that addresses those questions. So, and in this case, you have the neuroscientist, the philosopher, but you also have the anthropologist, etc. And it's not, and it's something that, however, follows a, um, uh, a concept and, and, and is mo- motivated by 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 uh, a pressing issue, which is that of variation. So, this is one way of going about it. But it is hard. Interdisciplinary is not easy. <laughs> no, it is. For, sure. For sure. As I said, you have to sort of put the best input and. And then uh, there will be a change. <laughs> oh, we have one more question. The lady, do we still have microphones? And a second one there. Yes, you were just talking about um, averages and outliers. And um, throughout your talk, I was wondering um, how... Um, um, ethnically sensitive is this research? How culturally sensitive is this research in the sense that um, we were even talking about the mice who would, um, um, in terms of their neural networks, um, uh, internalize um, the nurture that they were getting. Mm-hmm. So the idea of guilt, of course, is very different across cultures. And even though within the brain it might be the same center that processes the guilt what triggers the guilt is completely different from culture to culture so when we're talking about averages and outliers um, the scientific community um, maybe in the west because that's traditionally um, where it has grown Mm -hmm. um, out of um, how sensitive are they to this cultural relativity Uh, that's that's a great point We, we have the universality of 
Yeah, <laughs> thanks. We have the uh, universality of emotions. Uh, in this case, this goes back to uh, Darwin's work. So we've traveled so much to show that facial expressions were, were the same. And yet, all these examples that you have listed show that culture plays an important role. Well, if you, if you, if you run an experiment, um, depending on your resources, you often... <laughs> uh, Access uh, a population that is that is that is there is re- readily available for you, but of course it would make sense to include different different um, uh, cultures, both in the definition of the emotion um, um, and also just to have them as, as as specimens. It is done, and I think it should be done even um, even even more. Um, more recently, um, most recently, I saw um, a study that um, looked at how. Um, Individuals describe their emotions um, and, and, and uh, in their bodies, and um, and, uh, and 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 actually there was a, a huge um, parallel between different cultures. They took a Western population and um, an Eastern population from Southeast Southeast Asia, and in that case, they saw that the, the, the results were uh, similar and they comparable. So, uh, the more you can do of, of that, the more you can. The more the the, the 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 results and the outcomes will be um, uh, preferable and giving an answer. So culture is huge and depends sometimes on the resources. I think neurosciences are not entirely ignoring it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there was one question here in the front. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I would appreciate if you could uh, sum up uh, your uh, conclusions as to what neuroscience can and can't (laughs) tell us. That would be helpful. Um, So um, you showed... There are two things uh, to my question. So you showed us, for instance, the scan and then the area of the brain that illuminates (laughs) Yeah, um, um, showing that somewhere in the brain in a specific area we have you know, um, something going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so what exactly does it tell us? So if we look at this image, if a professional is looking at this image, what information can this person mm-hmm. derive? Um, on the other hand, you also showed a, a beautiful video uh, with some <laughs> background music. Could you please just a little bit elaborate yeah, yeah, yeah. on that? Yeah, Thank sure. You. Well, in the... Uh, in the case of, of, um, of guilt, I decided to, to, sh- to use this comparison just because they were both images. And I think that both in science and in the arts, images represent these issues of representation. So that fascinated me, and I wanted to, to, to compare it. The viewing the blob and the scan can tell you very little. In fact, when I was doing um, you know, research, and, 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 I, and I knew about the result, and then I went to look for other studies, similar studies of guilt, you didn't know, I didn't know what to choose. <laughs> I didn't know which one to include in my book as the main reference. In fact, I, I cite several in the footnotes because there are so many studies that, that, that look at guilt, and some of them mostly point to that area, but some as well. North, south, west, and east. And so uh, that t- can tell you very little. In general, uh, I try to, to, to say that neuroscience can tell us so much about the experience of the emotion. Okay, so when you are in the middle of an emotion and you are in your life, some, this type of information can tell you um, very little. The use of the video was, uh, of course, an ironical one. This is a, an, artist, an artist called Susan Anker who mocked 
the nature of, of the scans by using the Rorschach tests that are that give you psychological information, uh, and yet she made, she makes them uh, dance uh, to a very interesting piece by Satie, uh, Les Imbrons des Sechets, the dissected embryos. But to conclude, um, um, there are certain general notions uh, about that, that I drew uh, from neuroscience that certainly resonate with me. And these, um, I have told a little bit when I talked about fear and when I talked about love. The, 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 the notion of epigenetics, of experience, is something that uh, strongly resonates with me. The fact that we, we, that we write on our brain. And this can help you... You know, you know that perhaps you should avoid similar experiences because they will leave a mark on you. Or that you are aware that your, that your brain is, is plastic. And you know that, for instance, science has shown that if you, um, if you, uh, if you um, seek therapy, uh, talk in therapy, that will change your brain. And everything you do can contribute to a rewriting of neurons. That's precious. I think that's, a, that's an awareness that it's, it's nice to carry with you. <laughs> so... Okay, so um, I think if there are no more questions, that is actually a quite nice point to stop. So please join me in thanking our speaker again. Thank you. Thank you so much.